you have your Bible with you, I'm just going to read one verse to open us up. That's from Exodus chapter 12, verse 38. And this is in the context of the Exodus. They're leaving Egypt, Israel is. Verse 38 says this, A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would come and open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray that you would be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. Father, I pray also this morning that you would give us uh, soft hearts. I pray that you would give us ears to hear. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen and amen. Well, if you're visiting for the first time, I think this is number five or six, maybe it's five. I'm not good with numbers. Um, it's, I think it's five in our series um, entitled Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. And the answer to that question is in Revelation 7, 9, ultimately everyone is coming to dinner, right? People from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And remember, I opened the series by starting with Revelation saying, here's the end game when you start talking about race and ethnicity and missions in the Bible. The end game is every tribe, tongue, and nation around the throne of God. This week, we're going to do something. Um, we're, we're going to take a deep dive into a few things. The Exodus, we're going to take a deep dive into the ethnicity of Israel and to the ethnicity of the Cushites. Before I do that, though, I wanted to, to open by talking about, you know, a few, a few weeks ago, I finished a pretty good book entitled Hate, Inc. I don't know if, it, if you've heard of it. Hate, Inc. It's by a guy named Matt Taibbi, and it's about the media. And basically, it's about how despicable and horrible the media is. And he is a left-wing reporter. And what he points out there is the history of how media has made money. We have gotten to a point in our history where it is their stated purpose to make us hate each other. So 96% of people who watch Fox News are Republicans. 96% of people who watch MSNBC are, guess what? Democrats. And their job is, the, Fox's job is to keep Republicans anxious, <laughs> and MSNBC's job is to keep Democrats anxious, and the whole goal is to make sure no one ever gets on the same page, because as long as they can get you clicking, and the more someone posts something about something you hate, the more likely you are to click it. And what that has the effect of doing is sucking the joy out of anything good that happens. It literally, at least for me, it sucks the joy out of things that I think our country ought to be celebrating. So, for example, let's talk about Juneteenth for a minute, right? So as soon as that came on there, some of you flinched because you're like, oh, I don't want to be talking about this today. And other people, about time people talking about it, right? I mean, it, it, as soon as that pops up on, on Facebook, basically I, my, my feed was flooded with two kinds of memes. Right, conservative people who are, who are basically saying, "Oh, you know, Biden's just throwing a bone to the libs. You know, this isn't a real thing." And then you have, of course, Democrats posting things like, "You know, 14 Republicans would, are so racist that they vote against a day off." Like, I don't get any of that. Because when you when you actually look at what Juneteenth is, what's not to like? You know what Juneteenth is? A lot of people don't. Basically, in September of 1862, Abraham Lincoln made the Emancipation Proclamation. In the Emancipation, let me read you what he said. 
He says that on the first day of January in the year of our Lord, 1,863, all persons held as slaves within any state or designated part of a state, the people whereof shall then be in rebellion against the United States and then thenceforward and forever free. So he made a proclamation saying as, as of January 1st at 1863, slaves are free. Now, just remember President Obama, he gave a pretty famous speech where he kept saying, just words, <laughs> just words, just words. I mean, the, that functionally is sort of like if President Biden came on television tonight and said, from this point forward, all Taliban girls get to go to school. Like, unless you have force behind it, it's not going to happen. And what Juneteenth is about is the fact that it took two and a half years for the news of emancipation to reach Galveston, Texas. And it finally reached Texas on June 19, 1865. June 19, 1865, people who had been freed for two and a half years first heard about it. That's something I think we ought to celebrate. We ought to commemorate that. That's what Juneteenth is. Because, and if you think about the, the greatest, one of the greatest themes in the whole Bible is emancipation. It's freedom from bondage. It's freedom from slavery. We talk about that all the time. Whether you're in a white church or a black church, we talk about it all the time. But then when it suddenly comes to, you know, on the news and it, and it becomes a Republican or Democrat thing, suddenly we can't celebrate anymore. And I'm telling you, if you don't understand emancipation, you don't understand anything, at least with regard, with regard to the Bible. You see, because one of, we're, what we're going to look at today, in some sense, is the result of the first and greatest emancipation proclamation. And it was much shorter than Lincoln's. Basically, it was Moses going to Pharaoh in the name of Yahweh and saying, Thus saith the Lord God, let my people go. That's it. Let my people go. So as we look at that, we, we're going to come up with a question. And that's, remember the verse I read to you? It said a mixed multitude went out with them. And so the question we're going to ask today, or we're going to try to answer, is when it says that Israel left Egypt in, in Exodus, who were they? In, in other words, who were they ethnically? Who were they racially? Were they just sort of a monolithic people? I think a lot of us think they were. That we just think Israel is Israel. They're just, you know, that's who they are. And they left Egypt. And they just were this sort of genetically monolithic people. And what we're going to find today, I think, is going to blow some of your minds. It's going to open your eyes, I think, that, that Israel wasn't monolithic at all. So we're going to look at three things today. Basically, we're going to review Israel's history. We are going to research uh, the ethnic composition of Israel. Okay, so... Nerd alert, it's going to get a little bit wonky today. It's going to, it's going to be like one of Samuel's sermons. <laughs> that was a compliment. That was a compliment, man. It was a backhanded compliment, but it was one compliment nonetheless. Then finally, we're going to remember or be reminded of our the theology and the fact that theology always trumps biology. Okay? Theology trumps biology. So the first thing, let's review Israel's history so if you remember last week, we looked at um, basically the Tower of Babel and the, the whole idea of the nations being scattered. I mean, actually, last week we looked at Abraham, but the nations were scattered after the flood. And remember, they, they scattered throughout the earth. Tower of Babel happened, and that happened before they were scattered. It was why they were scattered. But the nations are scattered, and suddenly you're like, okay, how is God going to pull off blessing everybody? How is he going to pull this 
back together? How is he going to get the toothpaste back in the tube, as it were? And remember, last week we found that he called this one guy Abraham. Abraham was not Israelite. Abraham was not Hebrew. Abraham was probably Aramean or an Amorite or some Semitic kind of person, and he was called in order to do a number of things. Remember, God made him promises. He said, I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great. I'll bless those you bless. I'll curse those you curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so remember that Abraham passed the blessing on, if you will, to his son Isaac. Isaac passes the blessing on to Jacob. And Jacob becomes Israel. Okay, so at this point in history, Israel, if you say, where is Israel? Who is Israel? Israel is one person. It's a guy. <laughs> His name is Israel. Israel, Jacob, has 12 sons. And those 12 sons are named, or they're called throughout the book of Exodus at least, the sons of Israel. So the sons of let me read to you Exodus 1 to give you an example. The very, like the way Exodus 1 opens, it says, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. So they're called the sons of Israel. So when they go into Egypt even, they have no national identity. They're just a big extended family of about 70 people. That's important because that group of 70 people over the course of the next 400 years, would become up to 2 million people. And you think, wow, that seems like a lot. It's really not if you, if you do it exponentially, right? It, it, exponentially, that could happen in about two or three generations, but it, it could also happen over, it was probably about 15 or 10 generations that they had, and it would also be very easy to happen if they were marrying other people in Egypt. In other words, we think that the 70 people, do you really think they went to the biggest place, the, the biggest cities, the, the biggest uh, empire of all time, and the 70 of them went and they just never talked to anyone else, and they just inbred until they got to be 2 million people? That probably didn't happen. So another thing that's important to understand is at this point that they didn't have a national identity, but the two of the sons of Judah, I mean two of the sons of, of Jacob, Judah and Simeon were married to Canaanite women. So now think about this. To the extent that you think Israel is pure, right? That Israel is just what it is. It's a pure ethnicity. It's a pure race. That immediately out of the gate, Judah marries a Canaanite who is not part of Israel. Now Judah, by the way, is the one in who, right? Remember Jesus is called what? He's the lion of the tribe of what? Judah. So to the extent that Judah is pure and that the pure Messiah is going to come from Judah, as soon as Judah has a chance, he ruins it and marries a Canaanite woman. So Israel is ethnically mixed already. And if you remember how they even got to Egypt is their brother Joseph was already there. Remember, he was like the vice president of Egypt. And what was he doing in Egypt, among other things? He married an Egyptian woman. And he had mixed-race children. And why am I telling you all this? The point is that even before Israel came into the land of Egypt, and even before they got settled, and even before they started multiplying, they were mixed-race. They, were, they, were, they started that way. And they weren't a nation at this point. They're just a big, mixed-race family. And so by the time that the Exodus happened, They'd probably been intermarrying with other slaves. And somewhere in the 400 years that they started to develop a national identity. 
Now, here's what's important to understand about Israel. The national identity around which Israel was built was their covenant relationship with God, not their ethnicity. It was their, the relationship they had with Yahweh and the fact that he had made a covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and ultimately with them. That was the, the core of their national identity, not the fact that they were ethnic Israel. In fact, you never hear that. They were driven by theology, not biology. You're going to keep hearing that this morning. So that brings us to Moses. What happens with Moses? Moses is born. If you're, if you're not familiar with the story, right, watch Ten Commandments, or you could just read it in the Bible, of course. Moses is born to a slave. He is put in the, the water in the Nile, and the princess finds him, and he becomes a prince of Egypt. Eventually, he gets sideways with Pharaoh, and he has to flee. And so Moses flees into Midian, and while he is in Midian, he does, guess what he does? He marries a Midianite woman, not an Israelite woman. He marries a Midianite woman. So another, another race is being added to the mix. He marries a Midianite. God calls him to go back and to basically tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And I listened to the, the book of Exodus on audio last week, and it's just fascinating the more you get into it. He, so he goes back and he tells Pharaoh, let my people go. And basically, Pharaoh says no, and chapters 3 through 12 of Exodus are basically the, this back and forth between Pharaoh and Yahweh and the plagues, right? You have gnats and frogs and boils and flies and all of these kinds of things. And you get to the point where finally the, the plague on the firstborn happens after the Passover. And verse 30 of chapter 12 says this, And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Go up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go and serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. <laughs> that is one of the funniest lines, I think, in the Bible, right? So Pharaoh has just enslaved them for all this time, and he's finally saying, You can go, okay, Yahweh killed all the firstborn, you can go, but will you bless me on the way out? It's just ridiculous. It, it, it reminds me, I ran the Marine Corps Marathon in 2013. And the guy running it with me took a big Sharpie. He said, hey, let me write something on the back of your legs. And I'm like, okay, I guess that's what people do here. And he wrote pastor on the back of my left leg, and he wrote disaster on the back of my right leg. <laughs> and so I'm running this marathon, and people behind me are coming up, and they're seeing pastor disaster. I was amazed at the number of people who stopped me and said, will you please bless me, pastor? I don't know if I can make it. <laughs> I'm running, and I'm like, <laughs> I literally, to every one of them, I went, and they're like, thank you so much, right? Like, what did Moses do? Like, yeah, bless you. I don't... Mm. <laughs> what? Anyhow, I'm off my point here. Um, the bottom line is this. The, remember the, what the Passover was. It was God basically came to Moses and said, go to, to all of Israel and tell people to put the blood of a lamb over their door. And when I go through, I will pass over where I see the blood and Whoever has it, I'll, I will pass over. And who doesn't have it, I, of course, the firstborn will die. That happens. And so Moses describes the Exodus. And then what's interesting is that Mo Moses is writing this, is that he was the one who decided to add verse 38 here. I mean, he didn't have to add it. right? Verse 36 says, The Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they... They'd, let them have what they asked, thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, 
about 600,000 men on foot besides the women and children. He could have stopped there, and that would have been great. And, and yet he doesn't. He says, a mixed multitude also went up with them. And this leads us to our second point where we need to consider the ethnic composition of Israel. So when you read verse 38, it says, a mixed multitude went up with them. The word mixed there is the Hebrew word hereb, and it literally means a mixed ethnic... What did I write here? An ethnic mix of peoples or a mingled people. And if you look at old-timey commentaries, it'll say things like a mongrel race. Moses thought it was important that we know that when Israel left, there there was a multitude of mixed ethnic people that accompanied them out of Egypt as part of the Exodus. That a multitude of ethnicities, a multitude of races accompanied us on the greatest salvific event in the history of the world up to that point. So the question, of course, is who are these people? Now, fortunately for us, for our purposes this morning, the Egyptians kept great records. At least they kept great records when they won. (laughs) They didn't record when they lost, but they did a lot of winning, right? And so they kept great records, so we know the kinds of slaves that Egypt had. In fact, Egypt was was sort of the, the capital of the slave trade. Up until 1895, the world slave trade was centered in Egypt. Many of the African slaves that came to the United States came from Egypt. They had this history of slavery for thousands of years, and the primary way that you would become a slave in Egypt was basically to lose a battle, right? They controlled um, Kush, they controlled Syria, they controlled uh, Somalia, they controlled Uh, places like Kenya. In other words, if you looked at a map, I should have put one up here, everything south of Egypt and to the east, they controlled. They also controlled much of Syria, places like what we would know as Iran and Iraq, and maybe even up into the Asiatic nations. And by Asiatic, I mean places like uh, Afghanistan and places like that. They, They were basically the Rome of the ancient Near Eastern world. And so as they did military campaigns all over the known world, the the people who lost those battles came back as slaves. In fact, there's one one record where they recorded where they brought 90,000 slaves back from a conquest of a Canaanite country. So Egypt did not have a problem with enslaving people. In, In fact, basically in the ancient Near East and in Egypt, slavery had absolutely nothing to do with race. Did you know that? Slavery had nothing to do with the color of your skin. It had nothing to do with the language you spoke. Slavery had everything to do with whether you were a winner or you were a loser. If you won a battle, you took slaves, and if you lost the battle, you became a slave or you got killed. It was about as simple as that. And so who were the slaves? Basically, there were Semitic and non-Semitic slaves. There were dark-skinned and light-skinned slaves. And the largest group, maybe larger than Israel, was a group called the Cushites. The Cushites, at this point in Israel's history, would have been among the highest number of slaves in Israel. And what do we know about the Cushites? Basically, ancient Cush would have been Sudan, Ethiopia, Kenya, Somalia. And the other thing to understand about the ancient Cushites is that they were black. I mean, they were very black. The painting I just put up behind me is a painting from the days of King Tut, and it's entitled Tut versus the Cushites. 
And you notice King Tut, he's, of course, they're, they're going to win. And so he's the one that looks very regal on the, on the chariot with his bow. And his skin is dark brown. But notice the Cushites that he is fighting against. They are very, very dark-skinned. They, they were a huge empire for about 2,000 years. Notice, you probably can't see it in this picture. You can Google it later. Almost all the Cushites here have bows because the, the Cushites were known for being great soldiers. They were known for being master bowmen. And so the Cushites made up thousands and thousands and thousands of the slaves that Israel had. Now, mind you, they weren't only slaves. The Cushites were also merchants in Egypt. They were, they were civil servants in Egypt because what is, Egypt would do is much like in the book of Daniel is they would go and they, they would take the brightest and the best and they would train them in their own schools. And so there were Cushites in charge of a lot of this stuff. And so that's a pretty interesting thing. Um, Many of the Cushites were also part of the mixed multitude. Almost every commentator you read, that when the slaves went out, when Moses says a, a mixed multitude went out with us, that multiple races went out with us, it is almost unthinkable to believe that the largest group of slaves besides Israel, that none of them went out. And so right from the get-go, Israel is not only mixed race, but Israel is also multicolored, if you will. That, that Israel is composed of people with light skin and people with dark skin from the get-go. And there's more evidence of this, by the way, right? Samuel's going to preach in a couple weeks on Numbers chapter 12 where Moses takes a, a Cushite wife. And by the way, his sister and brother aren't very happy about it because she's Cushite. We're going to look next week at the most famous priest in the whole Old Testament, Phineas. You know what Phineas' name means in Egyptian? It means the Nubian or the black man. So the, so the most famous priest in Israel was a black man. Now, the question is, um, why am I emphasizing the Cushites here? My wife asked me that question. And I said, there's, there's a, a few reasons here. One is that you often hear, I've heard people like Louis Farrakhan, um, you, if you listen to old Malcolm X uh, recordings, say things like, Christianity is just a white man's religion. Well, you know what's interesting? There are no white people at all, almost, in the Old Testament. So whatever you think Christianity is now, it certainly didn't start as a white man's religion. In fact, we're, we're, we're late to the party. So that's one thing. The other thing, and this is why I told my wife, I said, you know what, if I had black children, I would want them to know that their ancestors were central to God's story, that they were right in the middle of everything that was happening. They were, they were part of that. It was important. It, it's, a, it's a point of pride. I would want my kids to know if it was my kids. I said, but I would also tell my children, not only are you central to God's story, your ancestors were, because you're, we're going to see as time goes on that's how that's the case. Not only were your ancestors important to what God is doing, but also you need to know that with God, theology matters more than biology. That there are things to celebrate about our different ethnicities. I mean, I'm Scottish and Irish, I know. <laughs> that was supposed to be a joke, right? <laughs> they drink a lot. And Anyhow, um, there are things to celebrate, but at the end of the day, when it comes to this thing called the gospel, what matters more is theology, not biology. 
that what made all of the, how, how do all these mixed races get together and how are they all called the people of God? It's because of God's covenant with them. And that's what we'll talk about next. We'll be reminded of this fact of God's covenant and that theology trumps biology. Look at the last, in verse 43, says, And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it. And after you have circumcised them, no foreigner or hired worker may eat it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any flesh outside the house. You shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you, and it would keep the Passover to the Lord, let his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat it. There shall be one law, this is important, one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. So another evidence that the, the, the people that left Egypt were incredibly diverse, were incredibly mixed racially and every other way is the fact that the very first thing that God tells them after the Passover, you know, he could have, they could have said anything. The first thing he does is say, here's who can take the Passover and here's who doesn't take the Passover. In other words, we're going to celebrate your deliverance from Israel or from Egypt and here's who, who's able to celebrate. Here's who's allowed to celebrate it. He wants to delineate that and he does not delineate by race. He doesn't say, all right, Moses, I want you to get a color meter and I want you to go throughout the whole Israel and, and if people are this color skin, they get to come in. If they're that color, he doesn't say anything like that. It is all about his covenant. Basically, there's two kinds of people in Israel that are described. You, you hear them. Um, you have Nochrim and you have Gerim. Nochrim are where you see the word foreigners, right? You often see the word foreigners in the Old Testament. And where you see that word, it's the word Nochrim. And that word means people who are foreigners. But they're foreigners who do not worship Yahweh. They're people who are not interested necessarily in assimilating into Israel. And they're not interested in being part of that community. They're just foreigners. They're visiting. And he says those people who are not wanting to worship Yahweh, who are not wanting to be a part of the community, they are not to partake of the Passover. Right? Samuel will say that some version of that later on in the morning. So they're not to partake of it. The others, however, the, the Gerim, they're, whenever you read the word sojourners or aliens, those are people who have decided that they do worship Yahweh. So they're followers of Yahweh. They want to be assimilated into the community, but they haven't been circumcised. They haven't gotten the mark of God's covenant. So what does God say to them? What does God say to Moses? He says, those people, anyone who wants to follow me, give them the mark of the covenant, and they're in. That's it. They don't have to do anything. They don't have to do any works. They don't have to obey the Ten Commandments. They don't have to be righteous. They don't... If they get the mark of the covenant because they have trusted in me by faith, they're in. That's it. It's all about theology, not biology. And the same is true for us. Right? So if you look at the, the Exodus, the, the event that the Exodus points to in the New Testament is the cross. And the, the event that the, the, the Passover feast points to is the Lord's Supper. And what is the bridge between the cross and the Lord's Supper? With baptism. Which circumcision in the Old Testament points to baptism. In, in other words, so who should, who should actually, who's able and allowed to be part of God's community now? Whoever has faith in Yahweh through Jesus and is baptized into his name. If that's who you are, you ought to celebrate. You get to celebrate. And here's what's even bigger. I, this could have been a really long sermon. 
because I didn't even talk about the last page of notes I have here, that basically being baptized and receiving the mark of the covenant, you know what that means? That means for you and for me that you and I are also part of true Israel. You and I are part of true Israel, which from the very beginning was composed of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. In other words, when God says, here's what it's going to look like at the end, that's the way he started it. And you and I are part of that, just like when it was born. Think about that. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that as we consider what you are doing in the world, that we would be able to celebrate with those who rejoice. I pray also that we would be able to look at the Bible and see how multifaceted it is and how big your story is, how your story has, from the very beginning, you began to to fulfill your covenant to Abraham by making him and his descendants a blessing to all the nations. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. Amen.